Today's podcast is brought to you by The Late Late Show with James Corden. Critics say James Corden was the best thing to happen to late night TV. For your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Variety Talk Series and Outstanding Variety Special pre-recorded for the hilarious Carpool Karaoke Primetime Special. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Chasing Emmy, the podcast for Emmy voters, their friends, and fans of the award show. I'm Henry Goldblatt, Editor-in-Chief of Entertainment Weekly, and I'm here with two of my friends, uh, Kristen Baldwin, TV critic. Hello. And Lynette Rice, TV editor-at-large. So much to talk about, Henry Goldblatt. There is so much to talk about. This is the first episode that we're recording after what went down with Roseanne this week, and luckily we have Lynette here who has been covering the story from the moment it broke. So Lynette, why don't you fill everyone in um, on what's gone on and what you've been reporting in the very, very latest? Well, uh, if you've been living under a rock, uh, <laughs> Roseanne's run is over. The The finale uh, aired, said and done. And in, and we should remind everybody that the episodes for this whole season, there were nine, right? Though They were all uh, filmed by December. So they were done months ago. And so since then, Roseanne has become even more active than she usually is on Twitter. And uh, the other day was now uh, it was uh, it's been several days. Uh, she um, posted a tweet uh, comparing a former Obama administrator uh, to an ape, and it was abhorrently inappropriate. Uh, and ABC agreed, and there, it was the the chain of events was so extraordinary. The tweet came out. Uh, there was immediate reaction, you know, a blowback to her. Then she posted an apology, and then I think it's, it was maybe three hours, ABC yanked the show. And so since then, um, while she's been tweeting madly, going from I'm sorry to I'm emboldened by all you fans, I need more followers, maybe I should do something. Uh, and in the meantime, several ABC execs came out and said, you know uh, why they did that it, something had to be done but there's the the issue of you know you can't stop a cruise ship on a dime you know there the the engine of the Roseanne production is still there all the actors options were picked up for a second season ABC picked up the show for a second season so there's a lot of money still on the table so now I think there is definitely discussions about can we move on in some form with this ensemble? And by moving on, Lynette, you reported the other day that this show actually, they couldn't play the same characters. They would have to play entirely new characters, but it'd be like meet the Bonners as opposed to the Connors. Well, if they um, if they use the same characters, they'd have to pay Roseanne. They'd, or you can also say they'd have to reward Roseanne because this time around, she has a created by credit. The first time around, she didn't, which really killed her. So this time she did. And so now if you continue with the Connor family, those are her characters you have to pay her. So would they want to buy her out? How much would that be? How much is that worth? What a great discussion for lawyers. Uh, and if they don't want to buy her out, then you create a whole new show. Then would fans care about this group of actors quite as much if they weren't in that Lanford situation? So the way, of course, this relates to our podcast, Chasing Emmy, is whether we, how we think it's going to affect the show's Emmy's chances. And I think we can all agree this show was probably a shoo-in at one point to get a Best Emmy nomination that it will no longer get. Agreed? 
Yeah, I mean, Kristen, do you feel like it? I, I feel like it would have gotten the nomination in Best Comedy. Yeah, I think it would have gotten Best Comedy. I think uh, maybe John Goodman would have been nominated, and possibly Sarah Gilbert. But you know, Roseanne herself is a is a wild card in more ways than one. Um, but I think you know, obviously now. Uh, there is a very slim chance that it will get recognition in any category. See, Kristen, I disagree with you, actually. I agree that Roseanne will not be nominated for Best Comedy because they don't want to reward Roseanne. I think, however, some of the actors who didn't go out and make racist tweets may very well get recognized and because almost because the Academy feels sorry for them. So, for example, Laurie Metcalf, who plays Jackie, I think she's a shoo-in for a nomination last week, and I think she's a shoo-in for a nomination this week. I totally agree. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Well, John Goodman as well. I believe if there's two nominations to be had out of that, I think it's Laurie and John Goodman. I don't necessarily feel the same for Sarah Gilbert, but I definitely feel for those two. Why don't you feel the same for Sarah Gilbert, Lynette? Even though I watch her and I think she's marvelous at that role. I mean, it's like it was a role she's born to play. She's even more watchable on that show than she is on the dock. Um, uh, it's like it's something that comes out of her that's just like, oh, my God, I can't keep my eyes off her. Um, I feel like at least with the Emmy community, they will see Lori and John as more of the bona fide TV stars. Well, I'm also wondering, Sarah Gilbert was an executive producer, and I'm wondering if she's going to be held more culpable for Roseanne's behavior than John and Lori, who are not executive producers on the show. Yeah, it's a good question because, I mean, Sarah Gilbert was one of the first of the cast members to come out against what Roseanne tweeted, and she was very sort of uh, black and white about the fact that, like, this is abhorrent and it does not represent what we stand for as a show, and, you know, we find it appalling. But I do, I think that's a good point that that she will be seen as being closer to the quote-unquote enemy than somebody like John Goodman or Laurie Metcalf, who, you know, clearly were not the driving creative forces behind the show. They were just the most celebrated character actors on the cast. This week, we're talking about lead actor in a drama. And later on in the show, we're going to be talking about somebody who's won quite a bit in this category and whether he should have his awards taken away from him because of some horrible things that he's done um, and a conviction that he now has. But before we do that, Kristen, I was wondering if you could start us off like we normally do and tell us about previous year nominees and some of the winners recently. Sure. So last year's nominees, Sterling K. Brown for This Is Us, Anthony Hopkins for Westworld, Bob Odenkirk for Better Call Saul, Matthew Reese for The Americans, Liev Schreiber for Ray Donovan, Kevin Spacey for House of Cards, and Milo Ventimiglia for This Is Us. And the winners past couple years, last year, 2017, it was Sterling K. Brown, such a delight, 2016, Rami Malek for Mr. Robot. 2015, John Hamm, finally, for Mad Men. 2014, Brian Cranston for Breaking Bad. And in 2013, I bet I forgot this show was on. I wonder if you did as well. Jeff Daniels for The Newsroom. Okay, I have a couple comments to those previous winners. First of all, as a sidebar, I do not understand shows that take place two years in the past, which is something Arrested Development is doing this season, and it's something that The Newsroom did when it was on. I don't understand the storytelling conceit of that, and Kristen, as our TV critic, I'm hoping you can explain this to me. I don't understand it either, Henry, because it's like either be now or be in the past. It's like you wouldn't do a show that takes place five minutes ago, and it's not like there's a huge, I mean, maybe this is a dumb thing to say given the world we're we're living in, but generally speaking, there is not a huge cultural shift in a two-year period. Like 2012 America wasn't so drastically different from 2014. 
I don't really understand. I think maybe it's the only thing I can really think of why you would do it is so that if you're doing a topical show or a show that is supposed to be topical, like the newsroom, that you aren't uh, painted into a corner with stories that are supposed to be timely, but they're breaking too fast. You know, news happens after you've wrapped the episode. So you can kind of deal with news that is relatively timely, but it's you you have the the safety of knowing what actually how the story actually played out with the rest of development i just have absolutely zero idea why they would do that well with the rest of development i can answer that cuz i did watch the most recent season i binged it and they're boxed into a narrative whole. That is a really, really, really bad mixed metaphor. They're boxed into a narrative box because they're picking up right after the events of five years ago when they were on the air. And so they didn't do any type of real time jump whatsoever. So they are telling stories that are a few years old before President Trump was elected, before the wall was in conversation, before Jeffrey Tambor won any awards for Transparent. Uh, It's interesting and it's a little weird to watch. I won't lie. That's exactly why they did that with the newsroom. They wanted to be, he, Aaron wanted to be able to reflect on the headlines and you, you don't want to be pinned in by it too much happening right now. Did you want me, by the way, to tell you the year that Michael Chiklis won in the actor drama for The the Shield? I didn't, Lynette, but I think you're going to tell us anyway. That act, that year, the year of such a greatness was 2002. And wins like that, and that's one of those ongoing um, uh, great Emmy discussions. And I think Mally uh, falls into this too. It's nice when these true underdogs from cable come out of the blue and win in their freshman year. That's what makes the show so worth it to watch. It's, that's what's fun is when those underdogs when You know, you have that smile on your face, Henry, and I don't feel like you're agreeing with me. <laughs> Some background for our listeners. Uh, Lynette and Kristen and I, as I've mentioned before, we have worked together for like 15, 20 years, something ridiculous. And Lynette's crush on Michael Chiklis has been about that long. Kristen, am I characterizing that correctly? That is absolutely correct. Although I would say crush is too mild a word. I would say borderline obsession, like, like one step away from a restraining order. I don't know. It has worked. Lynette, you bring up Rami Malek, which is interesting. He won in 2016. And as I was going through research for the pod today, I was reflecting that show was burned so hot so quickly, and then it just fell off completely. Uh, Kristen, did you watch both seasons of it? I did not. You know, and I uh, saw the beginning of the first season, and it just wasn't my cup of tea and never really picked up. And then, you know, it, uh, it clearly had a little bit of a sophomore slump uh, with season two. Yeah, he was. He didn't even get a nomination for season two. There's some other interesting little tidbits about this category. Kevin Spacey was 0 for 5 in this category and obviously probably won't be eligible to go 0 for 6 at any point soon, given what has happened to him. We talked about Bob Odenkirk, who's a perennial nominee in this category, who is the spinoff of uh, Breaking Bad. The last time an actor won for a spinoff in the show was James Spader when he won in 2007 for Boston Legal, and he had previously won in 2005 and 2004. He played Alan Shore on The Practice. I have not gone back and watched The Practice or Boston Legal. Have either of you? Yes. And how did they hold up? I watched Boston Legal occasionally because it, you know, the reruns run. It's really, it's fun. When it gets silly on, when they're out on the patio smoking their cigars and stuff, it gets a little crazy. But when you go into the courtroom with David Kelly, I mean, I mean, it's just unparalleled. He's it's it's great the way that he had Spader argue cases too. It's it's good stuff. It's the same with the good the good wife and the good fight. When they go into the courtroom, it's like this whole different show. I love it. 
It's funny. I enjoyed the practice so much when it was on. I don't even know if I could stream it anywhere at this point, but I don't really have a desire to go back and watch it, even though I, I loved Dylan McDermott. I loved all the characters. I love Cameron Mannheim, but I don't have that same affection for it as other shows that I want to go back and rewatch. I wonder if I would, you know, after watching, going back and watching Murder One, which was, you know, the Bochco series with, uh, uh, that was sort of following the murder case over one uh, one season. And I really did enjoy that. And the practice when it started, it was like this scrappy little law firm and it was dark. And, you know, Dylan McDermott was just like glowering at everyone all the time. Uh, I think early seasons might be interesting to revisit. It got a little bit more conventional in the, uh, in the later seasons. And then Boston Legal itself was just crazy town. Henry, would you go back and watch Harry's Law? Tell everyone what Harry's Law is, Lynette. That was Kathy Bates's show that from David Kelly, and she was uh, a gun-toting attorney. She was a defense attorney. So it was another attempt at a law show, and I think she really liked doing it, but she was very bitter about the way it ended, so much that when we recently did um, a roll call with her, when I brought up Harry's Law, she's like, next. She did not want to talk about it. I remember it was on NBC at the time, and actually the viewership numbers were very, very strong, but the demo ratings, the ratings among the audience that they say matters were not strong at all, and that's why they ended up canceling it. Right. I think it did, it, it did well enough. It could have gone another season. I think David Kelly was bitter about it, too, but we digress. I wonder if it premiered today, some other network would pick it up, like an older skewing network that would be like, we'll take your 50-plus viewers or whatever. All right, Kristen, take us through some of the folks who have won multiple times in this category, lead actor in a drama. All right, so with four wins apiece, Brian Cranston, Breaking Bad, Dennis Franz, four wins for playing Sipowitz on NYPD Blue. At three wins apiece, we have Bill Cosby for I Spy. Uh, We'll get back to that in a moment. Peter Falk as Columbo. James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano. James Spader as Alan Shore in The Practice and Boston Legal. And Robert Young for Jim Anderson in Father Knows Best and Marcus Welby, M.D. So about those Bill Cosby wins, Bill Cosby's actually won an Emmy five times. And Lynette dug up this tidbit that one of them is in 2003 for the Bob Hope Humanitarian Award. When Cosby is convicted of the crimes, the horrible crimes he's been accused of, do you take away this person's Emmys or not? Well, should we talk about the Humanitarian Award first? So he obviously did that from his work with um, scholarships and colleges, I'm, I'm assuming so. So that doesn't, ch- it doesn't change the fact that he did those things. So, but then his crimes weren't very humanitarian either. It's hard because, you know, do you want, if you go back and how many Emmys would they have to revoke, you know, if they started going back and looking at people who have since been revealed to be non-upstanding citizens. I think they could. I think the only way they would do it is if somebody started a campaign, you know, sort of like saying that men like this, Bill Cosby in particular, should not have any of these accolades remain in their legacy. But it's it's not fun for the Academy to have to drag up, you know, oh, yeah, we did honor him this many times. And oh, yeah, you know, we did give him this humanitarian award. So unless somebody was pressuring them from the outside to do it, I don't see what's in it for them to uh, essentially make news by reminding people how many times he was honored by the Academy. Can I make the complete opposite argument? I'm 
preface this with I'm not sure I agree with it, but I just want to put it out there for a second. What if you took that 2003 humanitarian award, for example, and dedicated it to all the women who have accused Cosby of the horrible crimes that he did and honored them and gave some kind of monetary donation to a pro-women's legal advocacy group? Ooh, like the Time's Up group uh, or something like that. That would be interesting. That would be a very nice and proactive way to handle it. I think that would be a way to turn a very uncomfortable situation into something positive. Again, I don't see the Academy doing it unless somebody starts making a stink. You know what I mean? That like, why do you, why does he still have his award? Why does he still have this, this accolade? But I could just be cynical. No, I think you're right. I don't think anyone has really brought that up, has, has really questioned these past awards, like Spacey's won two Oscars, and there's been no discussion about taking those away from him. So I think they would rather just forget that they honored him. So you don't think they, and especially these awards were won in the 1960s, you don't think they take them away? I don't think so. I think there would have to be some outside pressure for, otherwise they're just bringing sort of unflattering news about their own group to the forefront. And it also, like, it's a slippery slope, you know, like if they, they will have to go back through and and see, is there anybody else who has any other kind of blemish that would be hard to uh, justify uh, and it could end up just, you know, maybe they just have everybody send theirs back. Just send it back, just to be safe. <laughs> it's an Emmy buyback plan. <laughs> send back your Emmys, all of you. All right, Lynette, take us through some of the snubs in this category that have hurt. Okay, so we brought up um, uh, the nominations, the records, and that was, of course, Kevin Spacey. Uh, he was snubbed several times, and obviously before now, I actually thought he deserved at least one of those wins. He's, I mean, especially from the first season, it's. It, I think that was the year for him to win, and he didn't. I mean, do you agree with that? It's hard for me to say he deserves an Emmy at this point, knowing what we know. I mean, back in the day, I absolutely enjoyed the first season of House of Cards. So sure, if you were asking me in 2012 or 13 or whenever it came on, I'd say sure. All right, another snub, uh, Jimmy Smith. It really bugs me because he's been nominated so many times for NYPD Blue and L.A. Law, but he's only won once for L.A. Law, and that was in freaking 1990. And you know, Jimmy's a true a bona fide star. That's uh, to me, that's just just a huge oversight. Hugh Laurie uh, opens up an interesting discussion about whether to honor folks in procedurals. He was nominated several times for House. Uh, but he didn't win. So do you give the Hugh Laurie's, the um, the William Petersons? Well, how does William Peterson get into this discussion? We were just talking about Hugh Laurie. I absolutely think Hugh Laurie deserved an Emmy for House. The show was a procedural, but had a little more of a layer to it. And think back on those first few seasons about how new the character was and how novel the show was. I think he was outstanding and a revelation and that introduced him to American audiences or a mass American audience. And I think he deserved the award. How about you, Kristen? Yes. And it like his performance and the success of that show helped create the genre of the sort of unlikable genius who is helping solve crime, solve medical mysteries, solve whatever. So that became basically a subgenre genre of the procedural. So yeah, I think he absolutely should have won. All right. I got a quiz for you all like I do every week. Which of the following people are Emmy nominees in this category, lead actor in a drama? Simon Baker, Bruce Willis, Harry Hamlin, Scott Bakula, Ken Olin, and Johnny Depp. I think this is a trick question. I'm saying none of them. You know, yeah, he's gone none of them. Or wait, he's gone all. He's gone two out of four. He's gone one, two. 
I'm going none. I'm going to say that the person that I think is least likely to have been nominated was nominated because that's just how my week is going. Simon Baker. <laughs> Kristen, you get 33% on this quiz. Lynette, you get a big zero. Kristen, I'm so sorry about your week, but Simon Baker was indeed nominated in 2009 for The Mentalist. Scott Bakula had four nominations for Quantum Leap. Bruce Willis had two nominations for Moonlighting. And Moonlighting was considered a drama at that time. I guess it wasn't really like dramedy. They didn't call them dramedies back in the day. Yeah, back in the back in olden days. Exactly. So then the three who were not nominated were Harry Hamlin, which surprised me quite a bit, Ken Olin, and Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp for 21 Jump Street? Did anyone get nominated from 21 Jump Street? I don't believe so. Harry Hamlin did get a nomination eventually for Madman for outstanding guest actor but didn't win coming up next on the podcast we are going to go through our picks for lead actor in a drama series and we have a great conversation between Kristen and Freddie Highmore the star of The Good Doctor so stay tuned don't miss the series critics are calling woke bold and beautiful Star Trek Discovery reminds you why the Star Trek franchise has resonated in pop culture since the 1960s you can watch season one now on CBS All Access Star Trek Discovery for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding drama series, outstanding special visual effects, costumes, and prosthetic makeup. Welcome back to Chasing Emmy, the podcast for Emmy voters, their friends, and fans of the show. I'm Henry. I'm here with Lynette and Kristen, and we are doing Lead Actor in a Drama. And this is the segment where we go through all the potential nominees and come down with our final six of who we think will be nominated this year, and we do it draft style. And Kristen, I think we'll start with you this week. Who is your first draft pick for lead actor in a drama, and why? First of all, I love that you say we do it draft style, like Lynette and I have any idea what, like, stop with the sports terms. I do. Speak for yourself. Like I have any idea about sports terms. We do drafts in softball. Oh, that's right, the softball. Anyway, okay. I'm going to start with uh, the... Lovely young man that I interviewed, uh, and you'll hear that later in the podcast, Mr. Freddie Highmore, who plays Dr. Sean Murphy on The Good Doctor. And the reason I think he will get nominated is the show was a bona fide hit for ABC, basically out of the gate. It was one of their top rated shows, and he is obviously the face of it. He is the good doctor in The Good Doctor. And he does a great performance. He plays a doctor, with, a surgeon with autism who is doing uh, a two-year stint at a hospital in Santa Fe. And obviously there are some doctors on the team who don't feel that he should be part of the team because he can be awkward or blunt or not necessarily socially savvy. But he's brilliant. And so they have to uh, try to work with him. And he's great on it. He has done a lot of work to make sure his portrayal is accurate, but he's also not, you know, with anything like this, you always run the the risk of the actor like chewing the scenery or going overboard, but he does a really nice job. I think people will want to reward him since the show especially was such a big hit. All right, Lynette, who's your first draft pick? I'm going to say Sterling K. Brown. I feel like already with him, we're going to go into a Brian Cranston situation where he's going to get multiple nominations for this show because he's such a huge breakout and he's so likable and he's so easy to give a trophy to. All right, my pick is also from This Is Us. It's Milo Ventimiglia, who plays the patriarch, Jack. He had a harrowing season. He almost survived a fire and then didn't. In all seriousness, I think he's a terrific, terrific actor. He's proven his chops on the show. We got You knew him from Gilmore Girls. You knew that he could hold a scene. You didn't know how 
the depths of his acting abilities. And he was nominated last year, and I think he's going to get a repeat nomination. Agreed. All right. Up to me. Second round, Kristen. I'm going to go with Liev Shriver from Ray Donovan. I have never watched more than one episode of the show, but the Academy seems to love him by all accounts, meaning, you know, headlines that I happened to see uh, throughout the season. He had his character had a lot of uh, drama happening this season. So my pick is Liev Shriver. I'm going to pick Donald Sutherland from Trust only because because I have some real issues with this show. I think Donald is one of those that the Academy will see as is a true star. They feel like they want to give him a shout out. I see it just because of his legacy. Okay, my final pick for this category is Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm not a huge fan of this show, but like Lynette, I think Benedict Cumberbatch is a huge movie star and Emmys like to reward and nominate huge movie stars. So I think he's going to squeak in here. All right, so that leaves our six nominees in this category as Sterling K. Brown, Freddie Highmore, Milo Ventimiglia, Liev Schreiber, Donald Sutherland, and Benedict Cumberbatch. I feel pretty good about those. The only one I would throw out there is Matthew Reese. Does he, um, I actually, I feel like I would actually replace Liev with him because of the last season of Americans. But they love Liev so much. I mean, I wouldn't argue throwing out Liev. Do they ever go with seven in this or is it no they did last year as a matter of fact so maybe they'll throw Matthew in because it is his last time and obviously people love him on the Americans you know it's an interesting category because I feel like once we get to seven there's not a lot of room for a let me plead for So my let me plead for is way, way out there. It's not someone who will get nominated, but I just want to recognize his performance over seven years. And that's Tony Goldwyn in Scandal, who played President Grant. It wasn't a particularly showy role, but he's so good in everything that he's in. He's another one who's just a Hollywood legacy. Nothing would make me happier than seeing him getting a nomination. I don't think it's going to happen, but I wish him all the best. and I can't wait to see what he does next. Kristen, who is your let me plead for? My let me plead for is Ed Harris from Westworld. Uh, he is so incredibly good as the man in black on Westworld. He's a four-time Oscar nominee, by the way. And on Westworld, he's a brilliant mixture of menacing and melancholy. And he's also really funny. And this season, the man in black has reunited with his daughter, which is giving Ed Harris even more layers to play. I just, I can't believe he wasn't nominated last year. And I really hope uh, that'll change this year. Lynette, who's your let me plead for? I'm not going to be predictable and plead for him, but I was just wondering if we could have a discussion about what Sam Hewen represents and why we think, and I say we because I know I kind of feel this way, and I think Kristen's on board with me too, if a role calls for a heartthrobbiness, you know, the brawniness as part of the narrative does that immediately make it impossible for them to win an Emmy or at least get a nomination? And I, I do have some things to back it up. So I went back and looked for brawny men, heartthrobby men in lead dramas to see if they won. And the only one I could find was Tom Selleck. He won in 1984 when there's no competition. But uh, Don Johnson got nominated once for Miami Vice. Hercules, of course, never got a nomination. Um, uh, Matt Bomer in White Collar never got nominated. Ian Summerhalder in The Vampire Diaries, and I think he's good. 
He never got nominated. Patrick Dempsey's probably the biggest. And he never got a nomination for Grey's Anatomy. And then, of course, uh, Gabriel mocked as Harvey Spencer in, uh, Specter in Suits. So what do you think? Is that a detriment? Is being a beautiful man, often a beautiful shirtless man, a detriment to getting an Emmy nom? That's your question? Kind of, yeah. So I'm going to point to Exhibit A, Milo Ventimiglia, who is beautiful and often shirtless on This Is Us. But he's, he's playing a sensitive type. I don't know, but his beautifulness isn't part of the narrative, though. Because, I mean, definitely in the case of Outlander, the romance is so much a part of the story. And when she looks at him, she's looking on behalf of all women as we look at this. This is our perfect sign of a man. So I, I because he's put in that romantic role, I don't know if Milo is as much. We've talked about this previously. I think genre shows have a problem, and I would classify Outlander as a genre show, of more of a romantic, epic romantic show. Yeah. Like David Boreanaz on Buffy and Angel, for example, Like he was not nominated, and a lot of people would think that he should be because that show was so terrific, but it was a genre show at the end of the day. I think that's exactly right, and I think Outlander suffers from you know, being sort of sci-fi genre plus... It's got the romance novel elements of it. And oftentimes, you know, how how can the voters really be paying attention to Sam's acting, Lynette, when they're just like too mesmerized by his incredible body and like all those super hot sex scenes? Like they probably just can't even often they might just pass out when they're watching and then they forget to cast a vote for him. Kristen has a saying for things like this, right? What would you saying, Kristen? Well, what I would say is sometimes it's it's a detriment to be really sexy and hot as a guy. Uh, it's not going to get you a, an award as an actor because oftentimes if you're really sexy and hot, you're not necessarily the world's best actor because, as we all know, God doesn't give with both hands. There we go. That's it right there. I'm, I'm not saying that's the case with Sam. But I think it uh, can be a hindrance for some of the other uh, beefcake actors who you might have wanted to get a nomination. With our next guest, God did give with both hands. We've got Freddie Highmore, star of The Good Doctor, talking to Kristen. So stay tuned for that. I'm thrilled to introduce Freddie Highmore from ABC's hit drama The Good Doctor. He stars as Dr. Sean Murphy, a talented surgeon with autism who works at a prestigious San Jose hospital. The show became an instant hit, averaging nearly 10 million viewers each week, and it will be back for season two this fall. I'm thrilled to be speaking to you. I was a huge fan of Bates Motel, and I love The Good Doctor, so thank you so much for getting on the phone. Thank you for having me on. So let's talk a little bit about The Good Doctor. Sean Murphy seems like a complex and challenging character to play. After you signed on for the role... How did you initially go about preparing to create the character yourself? Part of the lure of the whole project was, first of all, for me, it was such a departure from the show I'd previously been on. Uh, three days before, in fact, I read the script, Bates Motel. And yes, Sean is, is an entirely different character. In terms of the preparation, I think the main thing that I focused on from the start in terms of research was making sure that his autism was portrayed as authentically as possible. 
Uh, and of course, that required various discussions with the consultant that we have on board the show and talking with David Shaw in depth too about how autism will manifest itself in Sean's particular case. And then going to documentaries and pieces of literature that I found useful. But at the same time, it's worth saying that ultimately, with all that research, you or I ultimately had to make Sean an individual in his own right. And he's not there to represent, nor should he be, uh, a representative of everyone who is on the spectrum. And it was, much, it was as much about coming up with his own idiosyncrasies, the things that he loves, the people that he loves, his sense of humor. That was part of the appeal. I mean, it's stating the obvious, of course, but constructing him as as a fully formed human being, as an individual in his own right. <laughs> and it's interesting because the show is based on the Korean drama Good Doctor, which, you know, I watched a little bit of one of the episodes on YouTube, and I was surprised how much the story sort of mirrored the story that we saw as American viewers. I'm wondering if you watched the original at all or what uh, were familiar with it? I started to watch it. And then, as you say, the, um, the pilot of The Good Doctor is very similar uh, structurally to the first episode of the Korean version. So when I was watching scenes that I was going to be doing, being done very well, but of course in that context, um, I sort of turned it off and thought it would be better to start afresh and come up with my own version of this character. Otherwise, I'd just be too tempted to mimic the brilliant version that had come before. Uh, but from from episode two, the show sort of departed from the stories that were there in in the original and became its own thing. As we mentioned, you starred for five seasons as Norman on the critically acclaimed series Bates Motel. And Sean is very, very different. As a performer, what was that transition like for you, especially given that you essentially had just finished Bates and then almost immediately started working on, on Good Doctor? It was a quick transition. It certainly wasn't planned, but then no one could plan to have such good fortune in finding a role that was equally as appealing and intriguing so soon after I'd just finished one. So I, I think in general, Sean, uh, and this isn't necessarily to do with the speed of the transition that was required, but certainly was the character that I've put most that required the most amount of research and preparation. And, and in terms of constructing him as a, as a character for the pilot, it felt like I was making bolder decisions than perhaps I'd ever done before on projects and knowing that decisions then would have such huge effects down the line um, and that, you know, we all had to be had to be careful that we were making the right decisions, and hopefully we did. <laughs> um, and of course, that's not to say that Sean can't grow as an individual, and that's what's so exciting to me about this first season is the way in which he does change and he does learn and adjust to these rules and codes of society. But at the same time, he will always have autism, and uh, those decisions made early on in with regard to that will obviously, you know, continue through for as long as the show goes on. You mentioned Sean's sense of humor, and there is so much humor in The Good Doctor. I really love 
Uh, one of the nuances of your performance that I love is how happy Sean gets when he's rattling off like a list of potential complications from a surgery or when he's telling a patient like, oh, you might have flesh eating bacteria, you know, and he's like, he doesn't do it as out of, you know, he's not being mean. He's just so thrilled to sort of have these answers for them. How, how do you balance the humor of those moments with the fact that, you know, in the scene he's dealing with obviously sick people? I think it's playing the truth of the of the situation. Um, it's never played for laughs, but of course there's a humour that's inherent in some of the situations that come about, but only because it's played without a wink to the camera, without this, oh, ha, 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 look what I'm doing, aren't I so clever? <laughs> I mean, I think it was, in some ways, it was the same on, on Bates Motel, in that the last season was entirely in Norman's head, and Norma was just this figment of imagination, and therefore all of the scenes between the two of them were somewhat absurd and bizarre and ultimately humorous, if you thought Norman was just stomping around the house on his own, but, but played straight uh, and genuinely, because otherwise the whole conceit would fall apart. And I think there's something similar at work in The Good Doctor with, with Sean, in that it's not, uh, it's not played for for laughs it's just who he is but but I love that he gets excited about medicine and this is what's great about David Shaw's writing is Sean is in no way emotionless I think that's a stereotype that has been perpetuated for so long that people with autism are somehow devoid of emotions and that's entirely false and it's lovely to get to see how Sean is infused about about as you say figuring things out and trying to help people even if uh, his help isn't necessarily received as positively as he may assume. <laughs> yeah, and then in terms of humour, I mean, I guess I loved the episode, um, which was the first uh, Islands Part 1, I think it was called, when Sean goes off on a road trip with Leah, because, again, we get to see him, a whole new side of him outside of that hospital dynamic as he's drinking and getting drunk for the first time and singing karaoke and getting really into that and surprisingly, you know, finding a, a, a love for for karaoke with the aid of tequila <laughs> and having driving lessons. And that felt that felt like an important episode just because it it showed us so much more about who Sean is as a person outside the hospital. You mentioned this earlier, but Sean has grown quite a bit this season in terms of making connections with people, including Leah. Uh, and the actress Paige Sparrow, I believe, has been up to series regular for season two. Can we expect more moments between Sean and Leah in the next season? Absolutely, yes. Yes, we can. It's funny because <laughs> usually actors can just rely on the excuse that they have no idea what's coming and so they don't have to give any teasers about what's happening in season two. But I'm actually in the middle of being in the writer's room and so I know lots about what is um, going to happen between Leah and Sean and all of it is exciting, but I can't reveal any of it. But I will not pretend that I don't know. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I was going to ask you that next. You're, you obviously wrote some episodes of Bates Motel and you directed an episode as well and now you're in the writer's room for Good Doctor season two. How did that decision come about and uh, when do you sleep? <laughs> um, I mean, I was I was fortunate on on Bates to have you know such supportive executive producers and writers in, in Carrie and Carlton who 
encouraged me and provided an environment in which I could start to write on the show and ultimately direct. And I'm equally as lucky that David Shaw has uh, taken me under his wing in, in that way and let me write an episode this second season and direct one too. Um, and I guess maybe a slight sidetrack from the original point, but working for David is such a joy. And he's not only a brilliantly talented writer, and I think we have a shared sensibility for what the show is and um, and and what Sean, who Sean should be as a character, but he's just the the nicest person as well, and is such a an unassuming leader who has a strong vision, but. But yeah, it's it's just a pleasure to work for him, really. Did he encourage you to join the writer's room or how did that happen? Was that something you wanted from the beginning? That was something we spoke about during our first conversation. I guess the fact that I'd done those things on Bates and would love to do the same on The Good Doctor and be involved more widely in the whole process. Uh, and it kind of came naturally to me on Bates because you spend so long inside that world inhabiting the character and it seemed odd between seasons to want to step away and give it up and not have anything to do with the show until you arrived back on that very first day of shooting next season and I enjoy that all-consuming nature of television and enjoy being a part of the process as much as possible. How do you divide your time now in terms of, are you in production yet or just pre-production on the second season? We don't start until the last week of June shooting. So there's still, uh, there's still time before then. So for the time being, I can, I can focus purely on, on preparing for that and, uh, yeah, and being as helpful as, as I possibly can be really to the brilliant writers who uh, are much more experienced than I am. But you did write an episode and a direct one as well this coming season? Yes, yeah, I'm going to get to, to direct one too. So that's that's something I'm looking forward to, absolutely. That's excellent. So the final few episodes of season one were so emotional, you know, as Sean learned of Dr. Glassman's cancer diagnosis and he really didn't want to accept that his friend could die. There were some really intense scenes between you and Richard Schiff, who plays Glassman. What was it like shooting those really intense emotional scenes, especially given that Sean doesn't display emotion the way people without autism do? Yes, I mean, in some ways, I think that, you know, the entire process of of how you think about scenes and, and solutions that you naturally have sort of fixes and ways of, of making the arcs in each individual scene come together. Those tricks or patterns or whatever you'd call it, they're certainly different on this show and you kind of are starting from scratch in terms of finding those those ways to navigate scenes. Uh, I mean, working with Richard makes it so much easier. He's he's a wonderful actor and, and brings so much to the scenes and so... There are so many different layers that he brings to his work that mean, you know, I can play off that. And uh, and I think the trick as the, as the last few episodes came, and especially in the finale, was just finding different nuances in every scene. And as Sean went through this process of denial and and grief, ultimately, about what Dr. Glassman's diagnosis meant for, for the two of them, find, it, it was all about finding that those moments in in nuanced beats as opposed to making anything you know melodramatic and i think sean in general is 
it, I, I enjoy playing characters that are subtle and that are that do live in little moments and beats. And I think that Sean is is sort of the epitome of that. That he doesn't need to, well, hopefully, <laughs> depending on how well I do, doesn't need to say much or necessarily express a lot openly in order for us to know that there's a lot going on inside. Will we see, you know, obviously Dr. Glassman has a diagnosis that's much more hopeful <laughs> than initially thought. Um, is it something that will play out in season two in terms of his treatment or will there be some kind of time jump? Um, no, there's not There's not too, uh, not too big a time jump really. And certainly for Glassman, his recent diagnosis even if it's a lesser one than they had initially feared is still problematic and so that will be sort of front and center really of of his and Sean's relationship as season two begins. Can you tease anything about the cliffhanger that obviously it ended with Sean and Dr. Glassman's jobs possibly in jeopardy? Uh, what can you tease about that? I'm hoping that the good doctor does not fire the good doctor because that would be unfortunate. Yes, in fact, this is my very last interview for the show because I'm no longer a part of it. <laughs> it would That would be quite some surprise. Uh, I mean, I guess that's not much of a, of a tease, the idea that I will still be involved and that I'm not fired from the show myself, even if Sean potentially or potentially not gets removed from the workplace. But, uh, but no, there's... Um, that's that's something that's dealt with, I guess, right in the in the first episode, the repercussions of that and and what that means for Sean moving forward. But I'm uh, I'll be in Vancouver for the entire year. At least that's what I think, unless I've been in the writers' room and they've you know pretended something else to me. But as far as I know, I'm still a part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's excellent because it's obviously a show that a lot of people love. Um, is there anything that surprised you in terms of the reaction to the show? I mean, it was very it was sort of a hit out of the gate, and it just kept getting bigger, but. What was your hope for the show, and what did you think when you first saw the the reaction to it? I mean, I think being in our little Vancouver Vancouver bubble where we film, the numbers that come through on an email are always somewhat detached from reality, and the reality is kind of being on set every day and just making sure that each scene is as good as we can possibly make it. I I guess it wasn't. No one could have expected the level of success that it that it's had, but we were certainly hopeful that it would that it would find an audience. And I think if we if we didn't believe that it was going to be any good and that no one would want to watch it, then it wouldn't have had much chance at all. So uh, we certainly believed in it, but but the sort of overwhelmingly positive reaction, I guess, has surpassed even our expectations. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about um, with or say regarding the show? Uh, you know, I feel like we've talked about a lot, and it's been great. We have, yeah. No, I've. I. I guess I just feel uh, lucky to be, to be a part of it, really. And long may it continue. It's such a lovely group of, of actors and and writers, and led by David, who's so wonderful. It's. Uh, no, it's a lovely group, and we've got a great crew in Vancouver. And um, onwards to season two. <laughs> Thank you so much, Freddie, and have a great uh, trip the rest of your trip in New York, and good luck with season two. Thank you very much. Cheers. 
That's going to do it for another episode of Chasing Emmy. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us in the Apple Podcast Store or your local neighborhood podcast store and leave us some feedback. We want to be as enjoyable as possible to you and we read it all. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to today's podcast brought to you by the show Critics Say is Exactly What Everyone Needs, The Late Late Show with James Corden. For your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Variety Talk Series and Outstanding Variety Special pre-recorded for the hilarious Carpool Karaoke Primetime Special.